Good morning. This week in Uvalde, Texas, an 18-year-old bought two semi-automatic rifles and 375 rounds of ammunition. He went into Robb Elementary School and shot dead two teachers and 19 children aged between 7 and 10. On Morning Ireland, Anya brought us this devastating clip. This next interview is just... This whole story is full of heartbreak. CNN's Anderson Cooper uh, did an interview with Alfred. Alfred is the father of 10-year-old Amory Jo Garza, who was one of the victims in the Robb Elementary School shooting. And um, Alfred was a medic treating another victim of the shooting. And this was how he found out that his daughter had died. I'm a med aide. So when I arrived on the scene, they still had kids inside. They started bringing the kids out and I was aiding assistance. One little girl was just just covered in blood, head to toe. Like, I thought she was injured. I asked her what was wrong and she says she's okay. She was hysterical saying that they shot her best friend, that they killed her best friend and she's not breathing and that she was trying to call the cops. And I asked the little girl the name and she's... <laughs> and she told me, she said, Amory. And Amory was Alfred Garza's daughter and that's how he found out that his daughter had been killed. And Washington correspondent Sean Whelan brought us the voices of children who'd been in the school at the time of the shooting. This is nine-year-old Carissa Vestal. I was, like, eating lunch and then one of my school teachers were, like, they heard on the radio that, like, some... Something was like outside and he had like guns and stuff and the teachers are like, guys, put your head down, put your head down. Then when he was kind of try, trying to get through the lunch doors, he was like, if you're in here, talk something. And well, we stayed quiet and we known that he, we heard his voice, but he was like in a deep voice. But we're, the teachers are like, shh, be quiet, be quiet. Then when he like left, we went out the back door where it's outside. Then the cops were all like, come on, go, 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 that way. Uvalde is now the worst school shooting since 26 people died, including 20 children, in the Sandy Hook massacre in Connecticut almost 10 years ago. Also on Morning Ireland, this from the state's senator, Chris Murphy. What are we doing? What are we doing? days after a shooter walked into a grocery store to gun down African-American patrons, we have another Sandy Hook on our hands. What are we doing? There have been more mass shootings than days in the year. Our kids are living in fear every single time they set foot in a classroom because they think they're going to be next. What are we doing? Why do you spend all this time running for the United States Senate? Why do you go through all the hassle of getting this job, of putting yourself in a position of authority, if your answer is that as this slaughter increases, as our kids run for their lives, we do nothing? What are we doing? Why are you here if not to solve a problem as existential as this. 
However, since the Sandy Hook massacre, there have been 3,500 mass shootings across the US and more than 130 shootings in American schools so far this year alone. On Liveline, Katie got the reaction of a teacher in Texas. John is originally from Galway, but has lived in the US for over 30 years. And he talked about how security measures and lockdown drills were part of the school day. Most of the campuses here in my in my district were, were under bond back um, about 15 years ago, right after the shooting started. So all the, the lobbies, all the office area, the entrances are like double, you have double entrance now. And you have to have a code, you can't just walk in, you have to buzz in, you have to show identification. So, and we do lockdown procedures every year, you know, we do firearms, of course, every month. We, but then you, we do lockdown. Yeah, describe to ahead. me what yes. a lockdown uh, drill would be. A lockdown is where the administrator, like for me, is the principal, we will get on the, we'll get on the, um, or the loudspeaker or whatever, the, the intercom system, and I would say, you know, Lockdown, 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 and then all the teachers would close their doors, lock their doors, turn off the lights, and uh, secure the kids in an area away from the door. And they cover the, the window if there's a window co- uh, in the door. They go into the bathroom if there's a bathroom there. They keep quiet, and then the police, the district police, will come and they do a drill. They they run through the campus and they knock on doors and they test they test the security of the teachers. If teachers would answer the door when they were knocked on, or they were just even locked, you know, and the this takes about maybe 45 minutes. So the kids would be locked down in darkness, silence for 45 to an hour. This happens every year. We do this every year. The teachers go through training at the beginning of the year. And then afterwards, they, they give us a report. You know, the police officers give us a report on how well we did. Incredibly frightening. Kevin also phoned Katie. He's originally from Kerry, but now lives in Connecticut. And he kept his five-year-old home from kindergarten this morning. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I, I think any anybody in, in, in the US p- putting their children out to school today will have had a, a dread in their stomach. But I mean, yeah. I, have, I have a dread in my stomach every morning I drop her off, to be fair, because, again, we are from where we are back home. And I don't think, I don't know, the American psyche, I'm just speaking from what I've seen, I think they're able to offer all the thoughts and prayers and ideas and then they're able to switch off and go on business as usual. And I I just keep thinking about like thinking about that Buffalo one still there last week, and now that's last week's news, now this one, and then God forbid something next week. You know, it's just carry on. It, it's the sorry state of affairs that I think things just won't change. Would would it make you rethink living there, Kevin? I rethink living here every day. <laughs> I'd um since we've been here, like, yeah, it's just, you know, I think Irish people growing up, like, you know, I, I was born in 1980, so you grew up the 80s, 90s. You kind of look at, you kind of, you know, America was revered back then. You kind of go on the J1 and you think, oh, an exciting place to live and all this. I think those days are well gone. Um, if I could move out of here tomorrow with the family, now I would. And not just because of this, but just a lot of this, you know, all the all the, the feeling in America and the, and the division and the, you can't talk to somebody around here without you know, falling into politics within the first minute. So I just keep myself to myself. I just, I listen to people that I don't try and engage because I still see myself as an outsider, you know. From Liveline. And it would seem that the divisions in American society are only getting deeper. Since 2016 in Texas, under the governorship of Greg Abbott, gun laws have been loosened. Here's US correspondent with the Sunday Business Post, Marion McKeown with Claire. 
there is open carry in, in Texas for handguns. If, if, um, so you don't even need there, a permit to carry a handgun? You don't need a permit. There's no license required anymore. There's no training anymore. There, there isn't even fingerprinting. Yes, there is a law that if you're a criminal and you get a gun, uh, that's a criminal offence. But there, it's, it's just you can you can buy guns privately and at gun shows with no background checks, no nothing. It's And, you know, Greg Abbott last September made a big, um, in, when he was signing off, on these seven different pieces of legislation said, you know, uh, Texas is going to be a sanctuary state for the Second Amendment, meaning that you know, anyone, basically when it comes to guns in Texas, he would provide the ultimate protection to allow gun older owners to keep as many guns as they want okay. and to and buy he, as many guns as they he, want. And almost unbelievably this weekend, the National Rifle Association will hold its annual convention in Houston. It's going to be 14 acres, a massive convention centre where they literally sell every kind of gun and gun accessory imaginable. And you've all these guys like Ollie North and Donald Trump Jr. strutting around and talking about how great guns are. Donald Trump is, in fact, a keynote speaker on Friday at, at the event. But as I say, I, I, I've been to three or four of these NRA conventions and I was at a private NRA convention in last November in Charlotte, where Wayne LaPierre, there was no media allowed, uh, was triumphant. And he was talking about, we now have the Supreme Court that we want. We've got the guys we need on the Supreme Court now. Basically, we can, you know, we own them. And, and you know, it, it, he's not wrong. Marion McKeown with Claire. That was Wednesday, but already in Texas, attempts were being made to turn the focus very firmly away from gun control. Back to Washington correspondent Sean Whelan on Thursday's Morning Ireland. There was a news conference yesterday afternoon, people may have seen some of it, in which the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, was asked about what happened. And he made it clear that he saw mental health rather than gun control as the most important issue here. That was absolutely the phrase, mental health, that kept cropping up over and over and over again. Uh, It was almost as if the governor could not bring himself to say that at any stage guns were a problem. Uh, He also mentioned a whole raft of legislation, 17 pieces of legislation that he had signed in the wake of uh, previous uh, school uh, shooting incidents in the state, which included things for what he called hardening schools, making them more difficult for gunmen to enter, having just one entrance in small schools, having armed guards. They've even got a fund in this state to buy guns for teachers, uh, but responsibility for that has been passed down to the school boards uh, where the parents get to decide what goes on in their schools. But uh, he would seem to be proposing almost anything, kitchen sink and all, but not uh, introducing any kind of restrictions on the sale of guns. And with a frankly wearying sense of futility, the debate on the Second Amendment rages on in America, while the trauma continues to reverberate for families and communities who have suffered at the hands of gun violence. On Drive Time, Sarah spoke to Monsignor Bob Wise. He was a priest in Newtown, Connecticut on the day of the Sandy Hook Massacre. I'm sure that day and that time around the shooting in Sandy Hook, I'm sure a lot of it is emblazoned into your into your mind or onto your mind. And I wonder, can you remember where you were when you heard what happened, when you heard about the shooting in Sandy Hook? Sure. Actually, I was in, I was in my rectory attic uh, wrapping Christmas gifts, uh, you know, it was right before the holidays. And uh, the custodian, who's a parishioner here, uh, called me and said, you know, asked me to get down to Sandy Hook School that there had been a, a shooting 
And I never expected, of course, the magnitude. Uh, by the time I arrived, it was it was very much like yesterday. And I think there's there's so many flashbacks of me that I'm dealing with right now. Um, you know, it was like it was something like an, a war. I mean, it was the between the first responders and the helicopters and the police. We were all assembled in the firehouse, and and the children's names are being called, and one by one, a parent would come and take their child. But then he looked up, uh, at the back wall, and here were these 20 families whose children were not there. And uh, you realized at that moment the poignancy of this whole situation and the destruction. So uh, it's very vivid in my mind, and it's been a tough, tough time for me, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I still <laughs> struggle with post-trauma from this, and uh, still brings tears to my eyes. I mean, it, these lives of innocent children who brought so much joy to so many people are just snuffed out. When the shooting happened in Sandy Hook, did you think then things would change? Yes, you know, and I I call myself foolish now. I, I thought for sure that would be the one event that would change the world, especially in this country with gun violence. And, uh, you know, I, I was just so hopeful for that. But, of course, as we know, it, it just the situation seems to get worse. Uh, this country is just it's being riddled with gun violence and too many innocent people, just not just not people in schools, but people walking down the street, children going in the playground. It, it's insanity what's happening in this country with, with the gun violence. Monsignor Bob Wise with Sarah on Drive Time. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Little children, it is not always easy to stand out. Sometimes you've got to hustle. Um, you're from a family of? Thirteen. Whereabouts are you? Uh, right in the middle, are six you? above, six under, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Brilliant. So you had to do something to be noticed. Had to do something, yeah. That's Megan Berry. And what she did was become the first person in her family to go to college, joining the 1% of people in the traveller community to do so. Now, Megan loved school and did a very good junior cert, but she did leave school in fourth year, but then changed her mind. When you had that chat about going back to school yeah. with your family, how did that go? My family, I don't think they really understand, you know, what college is. I never understood what college was when somebody first said it to me because it wasn't spoken about much in my family. So I think, you know, and then the value in education, if they hadn't, if my parents hadn't a great experience or my brothers and sisters, it's very hard for them to value, you know, we're going back to school and, you know, they, they, the way they went about it, they done completely different things. They were very happy with, and that was a traditional thing in my family. So when what sort of things did they, like they, did they as do? I said earlier, they got married, they had yeah, children, oh yes, right, okay. like my older yeah. brothers and sisters. So that was the norm, and that was what people were content and happy with. That was yes. the plan. So I suppose when I was going back to education, it was a lot of fear. You know, well, look, what are you going to educate? What are you going on for? You're not going to get a job. You know, high levels of discrimination and things like that. And um, yeah, I think. So they were saying, why bother? Why bother? That's it, yeah. Yeah. Because they, and it's not, it didn't come from a malicious place, obviously. No. It came from a fear of, you know, you could spend 25 years in the education system, come out the other side of it, and you're not guaranteed a job. Do because you know I mean? you're still a traveller. Because you're it? a traveller. Yeah, that's a common issue that is happening, do you know, and uh, it's a common fear in the community. It was a fear of my own. Yeah, it's interesting there you say it. it it's a fear. Yeah. A fear. And it's an understandable fear. Why... Why run the risk of failure when you can just do what everybody else did? Yeah. And I suppose the thing for me was um, the support, do you know, from like 
I, I would say the support from the school system, it was, you know, my secondary school, it was telling well, you can, you will get a job, yeah. you can do it. And yes. that kind of kept me going. It was all of the encouragement. And th- something that I really value is, is that saying, you know, you have to see it to be it. And as Megan says, she got a huge amount of support to get where she is today. But Ray did ask her this. Have you experienced uh, discrimination in the educational system? In the education system, um, I always kind of outshine it with the positive experiences because the, ex- the positive experience that, for me, I think... not answering my question, <laughs> Megan. <laughs> I did. I won't tell a lie. I did. And yeah. I have to be very honest. Um, I, I actually experienced um, discrimination from a very primary level and, you know, just the, the kind of assumptions that the teacher knows best. They know what you're going to do. They don't, you know what I mean? They, they're not going to take on your perspective or what you want to do. It's, it's the exclusion. Do you know what I mean? And it doesn't happen in all schools. As I said, I've, I've had great experiences yes. throughout the education what system. What sort of exclusion? Um, Excluded from what? Yeah, well, from the academic curriculum. I mean, I remember being in um, a class one time and I was put to the back of the class with um, another Traveller girl and we were put at the back to colour in Right. With, you know, markers. And we thought that was great sport. You know, we were saying, thank God for this. We don't have to do the work. So any child that age is going to be that delighted, you know. Yes. But in, when I kind of grew up, I was thinking, well, actually, and when I got to grips with everything, that was like we had the right. Education is a constitutional right. We had the right to be a part of that curriculum. We had the right to be in there and mm. learning with all the rest of the children and being taught history and yes. geography like everyone else. And the impacts of that colouring in and where you are, like where your capacity yeah. is and all that kind of stuff, you're, le- you're left behind. Despite this, I think it's fair to say Megan has excelled in the school system, an MA in community and youth work and a job as a traveller outreach officer at Maynooth University. All incredibly impressive. So does any of this impact how she is viewed in her own community? Within the community is is there a, th- a fear that if you become like I'm going to use this phrase too educated that you might lose your culture and your tradition? I don't think it like I think it's a fear of um, losing your identity in yeah. in the community, but I don't think it's due to being too educated. I think it might be you know sometimes we get too used to if if, if we're going into a place and we we're afraid of the unknown and we change our identity, it's very hard to maintain two identities. You know, right. so you can go one way or the other, and if you go one way. Um, you can lose it and it's 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 quite sad but and that's what some of the older generation would say you know she's gone too posh or oh, right. you know, that kind of way Would that have been said about you? Yeah <laughs> You've <laughs> gone, too, gone posh. too posh though. I won't you've, tell a lie You have notions above your station <laughs> Yeah I do I'm only messing No but no but, no, but this is interesting no because it, because it, it all it sort of informs what's going on Yeah um, th- Then that, that's not going to paint a good picture of education within the community is it? Yes, but the thing is, like, it's not, I, I don't blame the student because nobody in the whole world is obliged to identify as anything. Do you know what I mean? Or they don't have to disclose that they're a traveller. They can keep that to themselves. That's mm. something that, you know, they, they're not obliged to share with anybody. But I think for themselves, that's the hard part. It's not the hard part of the co- community. It's the hard part of maintaining two identities, you know, and the how... But they shouldn't have to, should they? They shouldn't have to, no, no. They should be allowed to go into a space where they will be accepted for who they are and they yes. don't have to change their identity. But, but, I was but, that, often, but that refers to... Yeah. You know, in college and at home. Yeah. You know, there's two because exactly. there's two worlds that you live in. Yeah, so you could step into the doors of college, you know, or uh, something that I always say if I was going into, if I was going in somewhere and I, I really needed to, you know, if I knew that they were they had a reputation of being derogative or discriminating, yeah. I would wear a coat and I'd have my hair up or something. I I just just do something different because I know or I talk. You have to change your identity sometimes to be accepted, and unfortunately, that is the way. And then when you come back out. 
you're back okay. to yourself, you know, and right. that's only a short period. That could only be for 10 minutes, right? But the thing is, when you have to do that constantly and do it for three or four years across the education system or whatever w- way it might be, how mentally draining can that be on students no. when they're not allowed well, to well, have pride in who they are? What a trailblazer. That is Megan Berry with Ray. Now, this is a bit like a sick joke because no sooner do we see the back of one calamity than this. Monkeypox. I think the strange thing about it, have you looked, at, have you looked it up? Have you seen what, what effect it has on your yeah, body? Not pretty. But the point of it is, it's, the name is most unfortunate. I think there's something about monkeypox that has a almost a medieval, biblical darkness to it. I, I, like At least COVID, for all its awfulness, sounded like something we could uh, medically understand more than monkeypox it's just an un- like bird flu was even more acceptable in some weird way as a, as a name of something <gasps> monkeypox I suspect if you did contract it the name would be the least of your worries but panic not it is treatable on Morning Ireland a name we fervently hope does not become a household one Tony this is Dr Dervil Igo chair of the HSE monkeypox incident management team Oh. Cannot believe we have one, but we do. Take it away. So monkeypox is a viral illness that usually um, causes mild symptoms and most people recover themselves without any intervention. Um, The type of symptoms classically that would have been seen in people in West Africa and in Central Africa would have been like a flu-like severe headache, um, temperature, aches and pains, maybe swollen lymph glands. And then what happens then after that is development of a rash starting on the face, spreading to the arms and the rest of the body. And the rash kind of appears all over the body at the same evolution. So, for example, it would start to kind of like raised little um, macules or spots and then develop into blisters and then they were crossed over and heal. That was Monday on Thursday just before 11. Just to bring you a little bit of news uh, we're seeing here, BBC News NI reporting that Northern Ireland has had its first case of monkeypox confirmed this morning. That's the first reported case on the island of Ireland. Let's go to the news. La 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 la, let us pretend that that is not happening. But with one plague hopefully behind us, Cayley House was back on the road for their first OB in over two years. They hit Cushnahauna in Ennis and gave it socks.
Oh, that is good. Kaylee House back on the road again. While we might know Colm Tobin primarily as a novelist, most recently The Magician, he has just published his first poetry collection, Vinegar Hill. He spoke to Claire. I did write poetry when I was a teenager and then I stopped. I have to say there was no great morning in the country when I stopped. In other words, it wasn't as though there was uh, anyone saying that the next Seamus Heaney has just, has just left us. You know, you know, I wasn't any good. I couldn't find a way of doing it. And uh, so there's 30 years where I didn't write any poetry. And then I started again, just, you know, the odd time, one or two a year. And then during the pandemic, I did much more. I had day, long days to myself. And in that time, any memory I had or any thought or any idea or anything at all, I would write down and follow it and just see what the next line might be. And uh, suddenly these, these poems started. Mm-hmm. I would work on them every day and it was a bit of a miracle. And I was But did uh, you surprised. stop all those years ago because you felt I'm not very good at this? And then what's it like to resume? Um, it didn't come. It just wasn't. It, it, was, it isn't the process of where you're walking along the street and a line comes to you and then a second line. You could go home and get a third. It just stopped. It just, it just simply wasn't there. And I think anyone who writes poetry knows this, that you could get a year Mm-hmm. When there's when there's no poem for a year, and then it will come strangely. It's it's it really is about inspiration. It is a, it is a sort of miraculous thing. And he read a poem he had written in COVID times. It was a Sunday morning, and um, I just went out on the street, and this episode occurred. The problem is you have to get home quickly enough, where the first line comes, and you start working to see if you could get it down into a sonnet what has just happened on the street. So it's one of those poems that was written on the same day as, as, the, as the experience occurred. So the poem is called September. The first September of the pandemic, the skies are watercolour, white and grey, and Pembroke Street is empty and so is Leeson Street. This is the time after time, what the world will look like when the world is over, when people have been ushered into seats reserved for them in the luminous heavens. Moving towards the corner of Upper Pembroke Street and Leeson Street, an elderly man wears a mask. His walk is sprightly, his movements brisk. I catch his watery eye for a watery moment. Without stopping, all matter-of-fact, he says, Someone told me you were dead. (laughs) I just love it. And in the course of the interview, Colm Dobin talked about having cancer and getting chemotherapy. And rather refreshingly, there were no particular smell the flowers, don't sweat the small stuff revelations. And you say uh, that cancer, the experience of it, didn't change you or you didn't come out of that experience saying, oh, I've found a new appreciation of life. And I love your explanation for that because you say if you didn't appreciate life before something awful happens to you, well, you've got questions to answer, right? Yeah, my feeling, I suppose, was that if you need if you need chemo to, to really remind you of how great life is, then there's something wrong with you before. I mean, I found it really tedious, boring, painful, and I wanted it to be over. And, uh, you know, I started dreaming about things. I mean, when I was awake dreaming, things like marinating a steak. I've never marinated. I wouldn't even know. Honestly, I would, I would know toilet duck better than I'd know a marinade. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, what was so, that about? <laughs> <laughs> why was I? Because you just, any, cause you, because you can't taste then anything to do with taste really begins to preoccupy you. And what happens then is, you know, my eyebrow, I, mean, I was going to say I went bald, but I was bald anyway. 
But um, things grow back. I mean, your eyebrows grow back and stuff and your taste comes back. It all is so gradual. And then, then you're back in business. And, but it isn't as though there's, there, there's a... Oh, I haven't had a drink since. And I haven't had a drink because chemotherapy itself is a form of... It's liquid and it changes your mood and uh, gives you a sort of hangover. And when it's over, you think, I don't want any more of that. I, mm-hmm. The idea of taking in red wine that would go through your veins in the same way as chemo does. Really? And that would weaken you. And that's I just, the, the idea of it would, would really yeah. sicken me. So I, can, I haven't been near drinks for, for all that time. Yeah, I can understand that being the case soon afterwards and maybe for a period of six months. But it's like childbirth, like you forget. Yeah, except you don't forget there because you see other people drinking and you think, why would I want to be like that? <laughs> so the so the red wine is gone. Red wine is gone. Mm-hmm. But yeah. no new mm-hmm. appreciation for the birds and the <laughs> flowers and the grass. Fair play to him. With one notable caveat, however. Except no. everyone in Dublin really has a problem with seagulls. I mean, you know, and because it was the summer when I was lying on the sofa and it was, you know, I got a sense of just how enormous the noise they make, the shrieking, the babies, the amount of, you know, they come and they come just before the dawn. And the dawn can be early. So at, like at 4.15 in the morning, they start squawking over your house and then they spend the day making even more noise. And uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a big appreciation for the nuisance caused by seagulls. Yeah, and they're huge. They are like dogs. Column Dobin with Claire. And from flying dogs to giant goldfish. Assuming that is, they survived the McInerney household. We have a goldfish at home that I'm the one who's stuck with uh, cleaning the tank and I am just waiting for that beautiful goldfish to pass on into another life so I don't have to clean the tank. It would never have occurred to me to put him into a river. Until now, that is... But luckily for our ecosystem, Dr. James Dickey of Queen's University, Belfast, was on hand to tell us and Sarah why it really wasn't the best of ideas. Mutant goldfish. This is a ubiquitous species in the pet trade. They're the mo- they were the most commonly sold species in a Northern Irish survey that we did. Um, we then d- compared their feeding rates to some native species and they were just absolutely voracious, uh, completely out-eating uh, some similar native species. Mm-hmm. And when we assessed their behaviour, they were shown to have like very bold uh, behaviour, which has been linked, to, it's been deemed dispersal enhancing. So it's kind of linked with spread in invasive uh, populations. And, and um, also, which is awful news for me, really, goldfish can live up to 30 years. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if you've seen some photos from the US where uh, goldfish have been released and they've not only do they live that long, but they've been shown to grow up to a foot in length, um, basically the size of a rugby ball. And (laughs) yeah, quite, uh, quite terrifying. Okay, well, that is us told, particularly me. Don't even think about it if you're thinking about letting them out into the wild. You just have to keep cleaning those tanks. Uh, Dr. James, back in a bit. Welcome back. Be it on foot, bike, mule, bus or rail, there were very few corners of this earth not visited by travel writer, adventurer and maverick, Dervla Murphy, who died this week. On Drive Time Series, I spoke to Dr Joe Murphy Lawless, her friend for nearly 50 years. The work that she accomplished is, is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Over 25 books documenting her travels all over the world from Peru to India, Romania, Israel, Palestine. Absolutely. And, and I, think you, I, I think perhaps what would be helpful for uh, current generation 
audience of your listeners would be to really to understand the context of Derva's work. First of all, she was oh, absolutely such a disciplined person, um, exquisite courtesy, but she never let anybody weigh with, um, as it were, easy formulae, easy, um, with any easy, too easy, too slack an understanding of the problems this world was confronting. And I've just been thinking about the, about, about the weight of her books. For example, I, I just happened to be with Dervla uh, on Christmas Day in 1989, the uh, day the Ceausescu's were executed. And literally, she said, that's it. She said, I'm off to Romania. I was never going to go there when they were in power. Now I'm going to go. Um, three weeks later, she was off on the bus to Romania uh, from uh, Victoria Coach Station in London. And there was a sense in which she always took on the hard challenges. She never travelled the East Way, not ever, not once. She was always there across this world. She was there to be with ordinary people and to get their understandings. Romania was absolute hell, as we came to know, as we came to discover the, um, the um, extent of even the orphanages, the corruption, the Ceausescu's, what they had done to completely destroy that country. When you think of the other books that she's written, when you think of Okimwe Road, um, which was quite unexpected for her. She went to central to su southern Africa and suddenly she was plunged into the crisis of HIV AIDS when it was absolutely wreaking utter destruction across lives and societies at that time. Uh, you think that she was there after the genocide in Rwanda. If you think of her book, Through the Embers of Chaos, she went to the Balkans at the very end of the Balkan Wars um, and cycled through the Balkans, um, cycled her bike through NATO craters. Everybody's forgotten now that NATO bombed Serbia, uh, Ukraine war, by God, it brings it back. She was always anti-war, always for social justice. She stood for that. Who now is going to speak in Ireland? Who will speak the truth that Dervla has always put before us? And as I say, she always asks the hard questions and she would let nobody off the hook, even with her exquisite courtesy. And later on Arena, this clip from a 1979 interview with Marion Flugan on Women Today, when she talked about travelling with her daughter, Rachel. When she was just coming up to five, she had her fifth birthday in India. That was her first long trip. And how did she take it at that time? Oh, splendidly, no, no problems. Of course, it was a trip that had to be tailored to a five-year-old. I mean, it wasn't a normal sort of expedition. Uh, on that occasion we travelled mainly by little local buses and we lived for two months in a village in the jungle in Coog to, you know, not to over-travel her, as you might say. And how did she travel in the next trips that you did? She rode a pony in Baltistan. Um, and in Peru, our original plan was that she would ride a mule from Cajamarca to Cusco, but in fact it was so difficult to get fodder for the mule that she could only ride the first 600 miles and she walked the next 900. At what age? Ten. Well, nine, ten. She had her tenth birthday there. Wow. And on Morning Ireland, Gareth Daly talked about working with Dervla Murphy on a documentary of her life. I think she just observed. Wherever she went, she would sit and she would observe people. She would get involved in conversation. She loved conversation. She loved to debate. She loved to talk about the issues. She was just fascinated by everything. And she had this 
wonderful ability to channel that into her work. And I think she's left us a legacy of amazing books. I mean, remember, it's nearly 60 years ago when she set off from the old market on her bicycle and cycled to India. And when you think of that and you think what she documented, what she saw, what she encountered and what she wrote about, she has left us this wonderful legacy to explore her writing and this world that uh, she had navigated through over the years. What an amazing woman and an extraordinary life, the late Dervla Murphy. With Ryan on Monday, Joe Harkin and her latest novel, Tell Me an Ending, deals with memory and how we construct our memories. And she and Ryan's book about the work done by the scientist Elizabeth Feltz on the experiences of people who were in the vicinity of the Twin Towers on 9-11 and how they remember that event. She was one of the lead researchers on this study, and it was uh, disturbing to read about. They, yeah, they surveyed people. I think a couple of weeks after, a year later, and then three years later, and they asked them where they were when they heard about the towers falling, what they were feeling, and, and various other questions. And they basically found that after the towers happened, it, their memories were fairly accurate. Hmm. And then after a year, memories in general were only sixty-three percent accurate. So, and apparently, emotional memory was the least accurate. Of all of those, it dropped to 40% accuracy after a year. And nobody knew that this was the people themselves believed in their memories. Like they thought the memory was reliable and this is what happened. It's only because the researchers were able to refer back to their previous answers that they could see how these memories were changing over time. Memory is not this fixed, uncorruptible packet of data. Like it's a dynamic thing the act of remembering the conditions under which we remember things change the memory itself. It it gets sort of altered or contaminated if you want. We can obviously get worried about that or make our peace with it. And in this digital era, even what we choose to document or not document skews how we remember our lives. The (laughs) generation's life will be videoed and recorded. Um, So, and yet you generally tend to record only the good stuff. So if you were to curate your social media, the chances are it's a totally skewed world of parties and joy and optimism and crack, as we'd say. Yeah, I don't know anyone who who, who records a row. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, some people's social media, I think, is quite doom and gloom. But on the whole, we like to present this, as you say, idealised version of our lives. Mm-hmm. So, and it... In a sense, that could be a good thing. You know, you look back at your feed and uh, you see all this string of just lovely times and that will start to shape your memory. So, you know, maybe that's nice. Maybe, you know, we look back and the past seems lovely. And, you know, if we delete things we don't like, you know, if a relationship ends, for example, you could delete the the memories of that on Facebook because you don't want it to be part of your sort of record. And you're also doing the same thing in your brain, even though you don't realize it, like the brain will pull out the things that it deems most relevant to what you want to feel about yourself at that time. And it will prune the rest out. So you're actually doing this process of curation, like on your external hard drive, social media and internally in your brain. And, you know, that's kind of how it goes. How fickle we are. Now, that's all quite serious. But later in the week, a little less so. What's the crack? How is your day going? Do you fancy some tea and toast? I see Mary from up the road was out late last night. All those birthdays, getting to them.
I really was very annoyed that there was no wind machine in the studio this evening. It, you, you, was your hair might as well have been blowing in the wind there. Might and we well. should be wearing, you know, those leather jackets. You know, the leather yeah, jacket. Flight jackets, the flight yeah. jacket. Oh, and I missed the big hair. An actual fire hazard. Top Gun. Now, 36 years later, Top Gun Maverick. Arena reviewers Paul Whittington and Ruth Barton strapped themselves in for the ride. But first, a look back. <laughs> actually, like I was watching, I was watching the original the other day, and I just remember what actually a terrible movie it is. But it's so yeah, it's iconic. Yeah. It's so, and it's yeah. just all about Reaganite America and the it's celebration. Like a very long music video. Her, and the, I mean, yeah. there you started off as an awful, but it was iconic, and you know, it was and it, the lines from it, the characters from it, the songs. I mean, people. People will think they've seen it when they haven't yeah. because it's yeah. so familiar. I actually thought I hadn't seen it, but I'd erased <laughs> it from my mind. I had seen it. But what it did do is it summed up that kind of, uh, you were saying earlier. that, that you So know, it was a great Reagan film, America. Paul, was it? No, it was a terrible <laughs> film, Sean, but it was kind of entertaining. You got sucked into it and it summed up an era in a funny way. A, a lot of the bad things about an era, but it did do that. And that 80s soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. But now this is a sequel and clearly getting the gang back together has to involve some jeopardy. Bring back Goose in a manner of speaking. Let's be clear about this. Tom Cruise's buddy was Goose, but Goose's son is Rooster. That's right. That's, that's right. That's, that's where it. we're, that's that's it. Where we're yeah, at with that's all of this. Very important stuff. Yeah. yeah but, but that scene uh, uh, mm. and the look, I've seen bits and pieces of it in various mm trailers that have been and lots of publicity around yeah. it on television yeah. it looks amazing it, is, it looks amazing and, and it, it is a very entertaining film I would have to say I mean I didn't I didn't find the time dragging the flight scenes were brilliant as they were in the first one actually and I think that the, the drama which is simplistic as Ruth suggested but it does play out well the acting mm. is good Jennifer Connelly plays because he has to have a kind of prospective girlfriend she's the she's she's the girlfriend a sprightly 52 yeah. and um, it, it's it's entertaining it's very well mm. done what? Not at all what might be expected. So, stars? Well, I've given it um, a thoughtful 36 stars. <laughs> one for each year of it, one for each year that has I passed. That up to two and a half. Yeah. It, okay, it? well, I'll go 3.6. 3.6 for the 36 years. I see again what you, you did Yeah, there. that's a little bit nerdy, but um, that's where I'm at it's at the moment. It's Goose and Rooster, that yeah, one. It that's is, that's yeah. where we are. Um, I, I, I think of the younger people who won't really know much about the original film, and, and it, so you wonder who this is aimed at, but I, yeah, I, w- I would go three and a half because it is so entertaining. Yeah. You know? Should you watch the first one? I mean, sure, you um, watch it before you go to the uh, well, I, I suppose it's an idea, and then you'll be pleasantly surprised by how <laughs> less silly this one is, right, marginally less silly. Yeah. 36 years on, it's still getting panned. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Who'd have thunk it? And they're a tough crowd in arena. Well, that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening, and for the week that's in it, we'll finish with this. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.